Welcome again to another episode of The Modern Agilist, where we press into the future of agile delivery. Agile delivery depends on structure. And for that reason, we have the greatest pleasure to interview Kenneth Cavanaugh today from SpaceX. We're going to talk about organizational design, psychology, and socio-technical systems. We're also going to talk about how Ken is applying his wealth of knowledge and experience into the DAO space to define and explore the, the bleeding of the bleeding edge of organizational design. So thanks for coming on the show, Ken. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be here. Yeah. So I gave you a little intro, but I think you could do a better intro of yourself than I could. So how about you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and maybe a backstory on how you got there from a thought standpoint. Sure, absolutely. My background is in organizational psychology, but I've gone by a few different titles and worn many hats from analysts to people scientists researcher. So as you mentioned, my for my full-time role is in people analytics at SpaceX. And most recently, over the past year or so, I've been helping to build Talent DAO. I'm a member of the core team there, and I, I focus on operations, research, and, and data. Yeah, my, my path here was interesting. I got my bachelor's degree from Syracuse University. I, I actually attended a year of community college because I had before that, because I had no idea what I wanted to do. And even with psychology, it was just something that was interesting to me at the time. It wasn't probably until, I don't know, my junior or senior year where I was like, I got to get my shit together. Am I allowed to curse on the podcast? Yeah. So I, at that point, I, I started exploring different fields. I Syracuse is the school where there's a lot of business and finance majors, and I was surrounded by them. And that kind of gave me an interest in so by talking to a few advisors and thinking about what I wanted to do with my career, I tried to find something that was interesting. And that's where I discovered organizational psychology or industrial organizational psychology. And so I decided to get a master's and I moved to New York City, specifically Brooklyn, to attend Brooklyn College there. And during the time I worked as an HRAS specialist. So I was uh, very much in the HR kind of tech world. Yeah. I, and for a while, I... It was a lot of self-study. My master's program, really, I think the biggest thing that I took from that was really teaching me how to learn on my, I wasn't really taught, I took one programming class in, in grad school, but I really wasn't taught much. I had to learn a lot of that by myself. That's like an ongoing thing for me too. I'm just constantly learning and trying to apply new skills that I find on the job or whether it's at Talent Tower or SpaceX. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting path you took. Go ahead, Justice. Yeah, it sounds like you're definitely pressing into legacy systems between SpaceX and DAOs. Just kidding there. You, when you first told me about the socio-technical system theory, or however you say that, I did some Googling around. I said, man, this sounds so abstract. And the, the best definition mm -hmm. I could pull out was a, basically an approach to complex organizational work design that recognizes the interaction between people and technology and workplaces. And so it's that human technology interface 
in work instances. And so maybe maybe uh, an enlightened version of Taylorism, or would you frame it in a different way? Yeah, I think you did a decent job at summarizing it. Um, I hesitate to throw Taylorism in there because it's not a popular term. (laughs) Yeah, there's so many negative connotations. Scientific scientific management. I mean, I'm actually a fan of scientific management. Me too. From the philosophy side of it. Yes. I think the way it was applied in the early 1900s was too focused on getting the most out of the worker rather that like just output rather than thinking of what is sustainable output over the long term Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's this kind of like evolution of management models that kind of started with the Tayloristic approach and slowly moved through industrial industrial design and to like these more humanistic models and and those really came out of that problem where you push workers to the brim and there's just turnover low morale and it ultimately just hurts the company in the long term and, and i think the other problem with this and the reason why i love the socio-technical approach so much is that there isn't a one-size management model that that fits every organization. And so you read about these management models online, you're like, oh, that sounds cool. Let me apply that to my organization. But if you just take it out of the box, because it is, maybe in your case it could work, but it's not going to work in all cases. Every organization is different. They function in their own way. So that's where the socio-technical approach for me is really a a great approach because it's not this. It's, It's actually about a process of discovering what the best org design is for your organization rather than implementing some old design and imposing that on, on, on the organization. Ken, you're speaking my language. I, I've told Justice before, I, and speaking strictly from like an, an agilist standpoint, we're exposed to, hey, this is, here's a great framework. Here's a book and here's the manual and here's uh, all the money you need to spend to do a transformation and make it work. And that's not necessarily across the, the whole organization, but a large swath of it. Hey, your engineering teams should do this by the book or should do all these ceremonies, all these sessions by the book. And it doesn't always translate. It doesn't always work. And I, I'm always an advocate for lack of a better term, the home-baked approach. See what you need, pull from some other frameworks, bring in some best practices and design something yourself that works for that organization. And the other thing I, you're making me think of is a lot of times people don't really think of management techniques or processes as engineering, but I actually think it is an abstraction of mm-hmm. engineering, how to design things. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, one thing I wanted to mention Ken, is this balance between every organization is unique, but also that there are good patterns. There is, yeah, there's yet high performing work systems. They do exist. And that balance, I often feel I fall on the side of their good design patterns, good organizational patterns, and out with this, like, we're so original snowflakery. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I, I'm out of balance in that way. And so your piece on the lost art of work design really hit home in that regard and has me questioning some of my perspectives on a one-size-fits-all kind of posture that I often have. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like, I really like that the story of how the socio-technical approach came to be. There's this institute in the UK called the Tavistock Institute. And back in the 
I think it was around like, it was around World War II. The coal mining industry was going through its own kind of little technical revolution. And this isn't to say that no tech had been introduced at the time. There, there had been tech, but there was, a, I guess, a second revolution. And that first revolution was like taking things from uh, the manufacturing industry and applying them to coal mining, like the production lines. So there's this researcher or trip who's observing this and, and noticing that some organizations were getting their performance benefits from the new tech and some were not. And why was that happening? The legacy organizations that were that had implemented new tech, or sorry, not the legacy organizations, the, I guess, newer organizations, you could say, had started the company with this new kind of tech now. But those production line kind of processes, and you had this workforce that was really specialized and highly supervised. And just like a manufacturing process on an assembly line, you just one thing over and over again, just mm-hmm. one thing. And we, it's, it's really supervised for quality control. And then you had the legacy company who were not using any tech and still using the, the old ways of doing things. And this is uh, dubbed the work group approach. Um, and essentially you had a group of guys who had their own little micro organization. It was a team, but they had everything that they needed to do the entire mining process from, you know, extraction to delivering it to the endpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, they self-regulated themselves. They had a wide range of skills. And ultimately, when you implemented new tech for people that were really specialized, they had a really hard time adopting it. But then when you implement the new tech for people who are highly generalized, they adopted it really well. So the finding ultimately is that the performance benefits from tech are contingent upon how you're organized. And if your workforce is not organized in a way that is going to support the new tech, do they have the skills that they need uh, to work with the new tech? Do they do they at least have the the path to learn those skills and that that becomes a lot harder with really specialized work yeah that fits so much with really interesting to get your take on all this because i think both rick and my own our background is totally different than your background and yet to see uh very similar if not identical conclusions coming from different places it reminds me of like the promise of the the cross-functional man was it the i'm losing the term for it it was the the renaissance man right the renaissance learner Mm. they they learn across all these different disciplines and see certain trends and for rick and myself we're coming from a pure more so pure agile background and, and but we arrive at this position that function follows form and basically the first question to ask is not what is the process but how are you organized and this has manifested itself in our own kind of space through like team topologies. So what's the structure of the teams? Because you will only get so much throughput and you will only get a certain type of structures based on how you're organized. Exactly. And what's really interesting now is everything happening with DAOs. If, if you start to think about it from, from that perspective, DAOs actually look a lot like work group organizations. You have the autonomous kind of sub-DAOs or, or guilds or these teams working on specific areas, 
project and they're self-regulating, they gain consensus and they're really trying to find that place of harmony. And it's, I think it's really interesting now because you're allowing the people, and, and this is what the socio-technical approach is all about too. It's about empowering the, the people who are actually doing the work to update the system when it needs to be updated rather than imposing on them. And that's exactly what seems to be happening with DAOs. And it's a really interesting. Yeah, I found to your point too, <clears throat> taking maybe a step back, but I found an injustice. I think you can attest to this. When it, in a more traditional, maybe not like World War II era, but a more traditional organization that has maybe embraced some of the new ways of thinking or less traditional uh, project management approaches, but let's say they're what they would consider agile or more nimble, right? Than traditional approach. When the new idea is brought up in, in an organization that maybe isn't segmented in the way that you're discussing, it's tough to introduce an idea and then actually put it into practice from a top-down approach. Hey, let's, uh, let's try this. Let's see how it goes. Let's see, let's see what comes of it. And then let's readjust. That's, there's a challenge there. And so empowering people to make those decisions and those changes that can really enact change a lot quicker, I think. So that, that's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. B before we get ahead of ourselves and press in, even though I'm chomping at the bit <laughs> to, to hear about your journey into this strange world of DAOs, right? <laughs> One thing that probably hit me more than anything else, even though basically every piece of writing you put out is some giga brain gut punch, <laughs> like awesome, highly recommend is this diagram showing, uh, different kind of business management models and how it's not just that we have random fads of management and how people should organize and what's the, but it's actually following a linear progression and that we find ourselves now in this, this most recent progression at the network stage where this is actually an improvement of what came before. It depends on what came before, but it is an improvement and advancement. And I'm wondering, did you tell us where you think the current kind of standard businesses are or where they should go? And then maybe we could go on from there to say, is this happening in the DAO space? Interesting. It's, it's tough to say like what all businesses are looking at right now. And I think most businesses are probably forming into the corporation model, the top-down quality management approach. Yeah. But I also think we're seeing a lot of businesses change to more experimental, dynamic, and sort of network models, like you say. Like you have Holacracy, if you've ever heard of that. That was uh -huh. something that Zappos adopted with I think they actually eliminated it, but there were some really great learnings from things like that. And Holacracy is essentially very much what DAOs do today. Gain consensus. They have their own pods of working. They have their independent roles that when changes need to happen or there are certain disagreements, there's uh, proposals that get put into place and voting happens. And I think we're still discovering what that medium is. And it's totally context dependent too. If you're trying to be a profitable organization, especially today's age with, with shareholder capitalism and to just this need to meet those shareholder expectations, there's a level of efficiency that like, like a minimum viable efficiency for a profitable company. And that's not to say that DAOs can't be profitable uh, at all, but, um, 
I think it would be a big challenge for a DAO to do well as a publicly traded company because the pressure from shareholders really, it, it's really hard to impose pressure without having hierarchy because that's what the executive's job is, right? The C-suite executive's job is really not necessarily to manage the company. It's, it's to manage the shareholder expectations and to ensure that the company is, is benefiting the shareholders. So that's really distinctly different than how DAOs are operating. The ethos around DAOs today, a lot of these organizations are looking to do good. They're public good organizations. They're making money, yeah, but the profit is not at the top of their And so I think we're going to see like this divergence of the kinds of organizations. It's and who knows what happens in the world in the next 50, 100 years, whether we shift to stakeholder capitalism, corporate responsibility is definitely becoming a more important topic and something that shareholders do want more of. But it's still the same system, even if it's adjusted towards leaning one way or another. And I, I think we're going to see this divergence where we have organizations that are less focused on profit and more focused on sustainability, public good, high autonomy and morale, flexibility, which is really things that benefit the worker. And then we're still going to have organizations that I think are for-profit companies and really their purpose is to make. And I think those types of organizations, though there are definitely things that they could take from DAOs, I think they'll struggle to maintain that level of efficiency and productivity without having at least some degree of, of top-down control. If profit is not the purpose, uh, there's a whole breadth of opportunity that's in front of us to redesign the way that work happens. That's interesting that you mentioned just the pressure point, right? A moment ago, we were talking to somebody recently, just, just the other day about you know, DAOs and some of their experiences having worked with these somewhat autonomous kind of organizations, for lack of a better term. But one thing they mentioned was, that, and Justice, correct me if I'm saying this incorrect, they were, they were basically saying, hey, we get down to, you know, the point of where we expect to have a deliverable done. And the next thing you know is the engineers are, they're out, they just drop. And there's no, it's yeah. hard to apply that pressure. Hey, yo, this is your job. We're, you're on the hook. We're on the hook. And that's really interesting that you brought that up based on what he was saying too. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tempting at times to say this is a failed experiment, whatever, but <clears throat> with any new technology, there just has to be a recognition and you, you could speak to this, like with every new technology, the same technology that makes almost limitless power, nuclear power also have, makes a bomb that can destroy entire cities and the same internet that's used for almost unlimited amounts of free information available at your eyeballs instantly is also a means of money laundering and human trafficking. And so it's a matter of like engineering the constraints on that technology. And I think that's where people get into and they talk about incentive engineering and they say, okay, what's the incentive? Because it's not as though in the normal work environment, there are no incentives. It's neither down nor traditional businesses are lacking incentives. It's just how are they structured and creating that, that in incentive engineering, which is, is a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I honestly don't think the majority of the world, the vast majority of the world appreciates the speed at which technology is advancing. And, and it's clear that the human coordination kind of 
layer of all that is not keeping up. And and DAOs are the next step there to work in this new kind of world where everything is so technology driven. And it's kind of written before about this idea of you know, the information technology as like an extension of mind. Um, and you think about, so there's like this thought experiment where I suppose you and a friend are, are meeting for coffee and, and your friend remembers that the coffee shop is on Smith Street. So he hops in his car and he drives himself over. And you've been to the coffee shop before, but it's been a while. So you need to go look it up on your phone first. You look at Google Maps and it reminds you of the location. So you hop in your car and drive over. Is there any relevant difference between the mental state that you and your friend arrived at? And, and the mental state is essentially uh, a condition of mind that has content. So the expression in that statement, the belief that I'm writing right now, or the desire that, that I convey this information. And eventually a mental state allows you to arrive at a proposition of some sort of attitude or an argument, a theory, something that leads to actions. So in a thought experiment, both parties are arriving at the same mental state. The only difference is that is the vehicle they use to arrive there, memory versus an information system. So in this regard, we're using information systems as an extension of mind. And I jokingly say, but like almost seriously, that DAOs are this evolution uh, of humanity towards the new sphere. Well, if you've ever heard of the no sphere, it was popularized by theologist, philosopher, Pierre Teilhard de Dechard, and he wrote a book called The Phenomenon of Man. And he describes a product of evolution that human consciousness reflects an increasingly connective hive mind, like a, a thought biosphere over the world. And what he, how he says we're, we're going to get there is through science and technology that enables us to share collective knowledge and organize on a global scale. And he says it's consciousness as a, a product of increasing complexity. And just like cells increasing complexity led to conscious humans, humans increasing complexity together formed this kind of thought biosphere over the world. And it, it, it's this really interesting concept because what we're seeing now in DAOs is this, this increasing connectedness. There's, there's this movement towards collaboration over competition. And so I think back to your point about incentives is that a lot of the incentive in DAO is based on the ethos and what we're doing and how this is changing a lot of the traditional way of organizing. And of course, there are the monetary incentives that cryptocurrency enables, but there's a, the, the monetary incentive, there's a threshold for a certain point where that stops mattering to a person and what matters more is, is meaning. And are you doing meaningful work? Are you working on something that's, that's a significant in, in the broader scheme of things? Um, and so that's, I think, one of the most powerful things about doubt. And yeah, you're right. It's, there's the challenge of people had the, the cost of exit being basically zero. But I also think that the model and the meaning that people are able to derive from this work actually fosters 
a much higher level of commitment than a traditional organization ever could. And so while it's certainly possible, I think most people in this space don't wouldn't leave a project in the middle of it. And I think yeah. people on the outside might see disagree because they see so much scam and stuff going on. This is just a product of a very new thing and these opportunities to both do good and bad. And of course there are bad actors in the world and and they take advantage of that. But then these are things that over time we'll be able to address. But ultimately what I think matters most is that we're doing something new that seems like it could really change everything about the way humans work together on a global scale, bringing us together in a way that we never have before. That's yeah, that, that to me. That's interesting too, because just again, speaking today, like in today's terms, more traditional sense, but you, I'm sure you've seen the studies and heard the things that people said that based on surveys and polls and, and analytics, folks are more concerned about the work they do and their psychological safety at an organization overall than just purely compensation. So that's pretty interesting. That sentiment pulls over into the Dell space based on what you're saying. That's pretty cool. And, and I agree there. Yeah, there are bad actors or there are people that just bail, but there are pe people that bail on organizations as traditional organizations. True. That's, that's pretty cool. That's pretty interesting. I, I am, I'm curious though, as if this is the trend, right, of, of humanity and this is the, the next thing and, and I'm not playing uh, devil's advocate here. I'm just, I am curious how, if things shift towards more meaningful work and there's a reduction in the level of general competition, right, that's, that's out there, how does that impact you know, more general economics as a whole uh, across business landscape. Ike is pretty much capitalistic uh, uh, countries and, and forms of government and the companies that work within those. That's the driver is competition, better stuff, cheaper cost. People want our stuff because it's, it's quality. What changes or maybe nothing changes. Maybe it's just a different way purely of organizing things. How does this mindset change things moving forward or what's your vision of that? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. I think it's going to be a slow shift. To your point, right, competition is essential. And, and mm -hmm. capitalism is not all bad. Capitalism is what got us to this level of technology in the first place. Mm -hmm. Without it, we wouldn't be as much of a productive society as we are. Of course, there are arguments against that for socialist countries, which impose certain things. But you don't necessarily end up with kind of the model of society that everyone loves. And so I think ma mainly the problem today is that we're deeply into premium capitalism or shareholder capitalism, where, you know, the, like I mentioned before, the, the sole responsibility of the C-suite executive is to mm -hmm. meet the shareholder's expectations. And I think we're going to, what's going to happen it's, it's going to be harder and harder to meet those expectations with traditional models. Because mm -hmm. as more and more companies adopt new ways of working that are more flexible, that create more meaning, that allow people to have better work-life balance, all those things that people look for and work aside from compensation, there's going to be a shift in the talent that says, hey, like I, I mentioned, that there's a threshold for how much you're getting paid where you start to think more about the meaningful side of things. And the people that are really talented, five to 10 years in their career, they're not worried about compensation much. And they want a job that's meaningful and has 
the right amount of flexibility for them and that they don't have to be constantly stressed about. Um, and those people uh, are going to jump to those other opportunities. And so we're going to lose really talented people from the organizations who still impose the old way of doing things. Uh-huh. That's and right that that's where someone like yourself or others that are interested in this really can kind of kind of buckle down and and start to define how this looks long term. Yeah, I mean it's happening already. I mean, look at remote work. Like all the tech companies who have teeter tottered back and forth on whether or not they're going to do remote work because I think Apple just lost its VP like yeah. The, EP of AI because they wouldn't let him work remote. Yeah. That's just well, well, guys, that choosing. who was going to make sure he was doing his work? There needed to be someone watching, chair watching. <laughs> sure, you know. So yeah. you're saying, Kenneth, you're saying basically we're starting to see the advent of some of the shift is what you're saying. It, maybe yeah, not absolutely. to full maturity yet, but yeah. Oh, wow. These things take time. There, it's a large system with systems within them that that have conflicting pressures from multiple sides it's not something that is going to change overnight but i think we're starting to see a lot more pressure from the workforce to have better working conditions and this is it's funny going back to those like evolution of management models this is something that happens again and again it's, mm-hmm. like, it's like in like every hundred years or so the workforce is like these conditions are terrible. We want better. And the world gives better working conditions. And we slowly yeah. evolved to that kind of local or global optimum where, you know, humanity is thriving in, in the best ways possible. And who knows what the exact conditions are for that. But I think we slowly move to it. And it's really hard to see in a single lifetime until it's easy to just pick apart the terrible things that happen in, in corporations today because there surely are. If you worked your grandfather's job, you would be begging to work. <laughs> oh, so true. So yeah. true. I want, I want, uh, I want my 13 year old son to work for a nickel a day in a mine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm okay on the mine. <laughs> it reminds me of a scene I saw. There's a History Channel series. I think it's like The Men Who Made America. And I don't remember whose factory it was, but it was something like the workers wanted to stop working or they were going to revolt or something. And basically, the owner of the factory, one of these big, well known names. Uh, like, I think you're talking about Henry Frick in Pittsburgh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sent the, sent the guys in and they shot him. Yeah. Yeah. They, they sent cops in and they just blew him away. And so I'm like, yeah, man, we got it better today. I think we did. I, I, I also, you just, you're again, you're talking my language, Kenneth, and the stuff, obviously a wealth more than me on this, on these topics, but the things that you're saying are things that I'm interested in and hearing about and learning about. And I think it might've been yesterday or today, even just browsing the news on television and it, they said pretty much what you said, and I don't think they were keying in on the rationale behind the why, but they, they said, Hey, you're seeing all this stuff, these economic stressors and folks want like a living wage and, and this, that, and the other thing, not, not necessarily directly linked to what we're talking about here, but very similar. And, and they said, you see this history repeats itself where folks shift in their thinking and their desires and what they feel is, is fair and reasonable. So it's, it's pretty cool that we're talking now about something that can facilitate 
at least partially some of the, the labor forces trends. It's pretty cool. Now, Ken, most of our listeners are coming from a agile software delivery background. Probably most of the time what we press into is team structure, delivery analytics, a lot of scaled agile methods and how can they be modeled and measured what's effective, what's not team psychology type of stuff, like, uh, forming, norming, storming, like these type of concepts. And I'm going to ask you a question. We've asked some of our previous guests is where does someone who's in that position there, what do they press into, to be ahead of the curve for what is coming? You did say we need to be content with seeing what we can see within our lifetime, but with given the unreal acceleration of things, we're still fairly young. I love hanging out with old timers and they call me a young man. It makes me feel good. But as young men, we'll own it. There's still some time to see stuff and to either fall behind or stay ahead. Where does a person go to stay ahead? How do they do that? Yeah. It's tough today and it definitely depends on your industry and your area of work, but absolutely like for me, a really big one is artificial intelligence. And if you follow um, the AI space at all, you have seen and over the past year or two, just an extreme explosion in just better and better models and, I, and if you look at i don't know if you're familiar with gpt3 that's probably the most mm-hmm. common they know one this is likely to replace copywriters maybe even journalism journalism to some extent they're able to do fact checking with these models and there's just so much that we don't really know what these models are capable of but also the fact that they are capable of so much and i think it's going to start with ai assisted tech but i think we're going to see jobs getting replaced and the most important thing in that regard i think when a lot of people like criticize technological development as you know it eliminates jobs but that's like a short-term byproduct long-term technology usually creates more jobs it creates more opportunity for a profit to different types of organizations to form. So you have more entrepreneurs building new things and ultimately more jobs. But the, the skill sets are going to change. And, and this is where it's not just about AI, but like any new technological development, the skill sets are going to evolve. And so there's really no way, and I think software engineers understand this well, it, there's really no way to predict what the next important skill is going to be. But what's most important is knowing how to learn on your own to use the tools of the internet to discover new things and figure out how to adapt to new technologies. And I think that's a skill that most people who who do programming for a living do really well at, but a lot of other people in the world who don't are not very good and they're going to be at a disadvantage. Um, So if there's one thing for me, it's it's learn how to learn, learn how to teach yourself new things. I I talk to a lot of software engineers who feel like, especially the self-taught ones, who feel like, oh, I can learn anything. But that's not, and and I, in, in some regards, I feel that way too. When I was a freshman or sophomore, in, in college, 
I, I, I said to myself, wow, AI was something that I was just hearing about. Obviously, I heard about it from science fiction, but like it actually being in the real world was was something that was new to me. And I was like, wow, and I'd love to like work with this stuff. And here I am today, like I, I, I do work with that stuff. And it really hit me that you, you really can learn almost anything. And especially for people who are in the corporate world, the level of intelligence for the average person in the corporate world is probably above average compared to the rest of the world. Most of those people are capable of learning things. I think the problem is they just don't know how. And that's really the most important skill that I think is often not taught in school and not emphasized enough when we talk about technological change. Yeah, Kenneth, I, I want to ask you on that point, for folks that are interested in this or into this like we are in varying levels, right, of expertise in it, but how can we promote that sense of learn yourself? And then also, what are some things that we can do as, I think I used this term before, evangelists of this, that can really put people on that path? Hey, you want to get into this? You want to set yourself up for success? Here's something like you said, hey, learn yourself, dig into it, join up with these groups, join up with these folks. But what are some things that we can continue to to push that would, would put people on the straight and narrow if they're into this? What are, what are your takes on that? Like, how do we tell people that in a way that makes them say, yeah, I can learn stuff or, hey, I, this is something I can dig into. And here's a good starting point. What can we say to those folks? Yeah, here's the thing about learning. It exponentially amplified by your interest. Mm. And if you're not interested in learning something, you're not going to learn it. Mm. You could try because you have to maybe met what the problem with school is today. Uh, you're always <laughs> on what to learn rather than following your interests. But that's the number one thing that I would encourage because it's it, it beneficial in multiple ways. One, if you're interested in something, you are going to be much more motivated to learn it. You also, that will help you learn it faster and advance your career. And not only advance your career, but, but in the direction that you actually really enjoy and you like doing. Mm -hmm. um, so although technology is changing, if you're not interested in working with a AI, don't mm -hmm. learn AI. Mm -hmm. Find a technological niche that you are interested in and start researching it. YouTube is probably my favorite place to learn. Yeah, I think I've worn out YouTube servers sometime. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it, you got to follow your interest uh, at the end of the day because that's what helps you really stay motivated to do that thing. That's, that's a great point. And, and speaking of as a spouse of a teacher, one thing that I've learned, and she's younger education, but hey, like you said, these, some things these kids are interested in, some kids excel because they like it, enjoy it. But one thing too, I've learned in my own personal life too, talking to others, doing even things that I'm interested in, trying to get a grasp on things is I'll tack on to what you said. I have to keep an open mind as to what link linkages there are between different concepts, right? If I'm not, maybe I'm not interested as a person in AI or something like that. Like you said, that's not something I would pursue. But I have to be open to the fact that there could be some correlation between the things that I am interested in, the things I am learning, and down the line, how they could be impacted by some newer technology or some totally different area of learning. So that's real. I'm really excited that you said that. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Connecting different things from different areas. I'm a big proponent of 
being a generalist over a specialist. And the more breadth of knowledge that you have on different subjects is actually going to be really beneficial to whatever field that you're working in because you're going to be able to take in new ideas from completely different fields that people who are highly specialized in your field won't even think about. And they can, you can read something that is seemingly completely irrelevant, but then find that down the line, oh, there was this idea in that like book that I read that was, that totally makes sense in this context. So that's something that I personally have been trying to do a lot more of when I was sitting in grad school and early in my career, I was, I was very much focused on psychology and I have psychology. I wanted to read all the, I wanted to read Freud's book and Mm-hmm. I wanted to read all the budget tailor and all the psychologists or industrial designers that were prominent in my field. But I, I started to realize that, yeah, it was good to know them because I could speak on them, especially because I'm, I'm an adjunct professor in the summer. So that surely helped, but I wasn't getting like the, the benefit from those that yeah. I was from like expanding that knowledge outwards into things like economic like right now i'm reading um how asia works mm-hmm. completely irrelevant to my field but in some ways it's not because it's very much about the large system and how large systems like china did things to advance their society in a much different way than we did in the u.s and and there are fairly learnings there that can be applied to field. but if, if you're not looking for them you're not going to find them yeah, that's cool. Have you read the book called Range by David Epstein? It's a I, you, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know what book you're talking about. It has been on my list for a long time. Yeah. It, it, when you talked about favoring being a general, generalist over a specialist, that's the book that came to mind too. That's pretty, pretty cool. Sorry, Justice. I think you were going to say something. But I was going to say, Ken, you've certainly expanded our range 100% <laughs> on this show and in this conversation. And I wanted to ask you a final question, and that is what you've touched on several things, and we could probably infer them, the answer to this, but I want to give you the opportunity to answer directly. What's getting you out of bed in the morning today? What has, you say you're a generalist, so it's fine to say several things, but what's one thing if you could to say, I'm most excited about this and many other things I, you need to clear the, try to clear the table to focus on this one thing. That's a good question. I think today I'm lucky enough to work in two organizations that are doing really impactful things for humanity. And I think for me, being a part of that is one of the biggest things, being able to influence the work system that's SpaceX and being able to conduct research in the DAO ecosystem that really has never been done before and, and create this kind of new body of research. Being on the cutting edge of things is what gets me up in the morning. I've read a lot of sci-fi in my life, so I think I, I hold a lot of those ideologies, but for me, that's the thing that's most interesting. What's new? What's next? How can we apply it? How can we make things better and, and impact? I, I want to leave Mark on this world before I leave it. Oh man, I didn't expect the answer to give me goosebumps. What's that Steve Jobs saying? Leave a ding in the... Yes, but I... Good. I think Saul is... She's going to be very proud to hear basically she founded the Talent Dow, I think. Yeah. Basically to hear that answer to your question there. SpaceX and Talent Dow. So I'll speak for myself, man. I applaud your efforts. 
please continue to put out your writing and be as broad as you are. We are absolutely open to having you back on the show at a future point, especially if you find yourself bumping up against something where you're like, wow, I'm going deep on this and I want to have a platform to share it out. And we increasingly want to make the connection with our audience on this scale delivery and basically organizing in such a way to make that maximally efficient via Conway's law and all the psychology involved in that so that it's a utopia and not a dystopia. So thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. It was great being here. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. This is great.